0: Hello, and welcome to the Mystery of the Ragged Stranger podcast. My name is Michael Hendricks, and I will be your host. This episode is the second of an eight part series being published on the Ragged Stranger blog at ChicagoNow.com. On the blog, there is an easy email subscription if you'd like to have this podcast emailed to you upon each new episode being released. We return to where we left off last week, the morning of June 21st, 1920, in what is now Chicago's Lincoln Square neighborhood. Carl Wanderer had come up with a dastardly plan a couple days prior. And he hoped that by the evening's end his plan would have been brought to a conclusion. Breakfast was first on his agenda, and he took it with his father in law Charlie, his mother in law Eugenia, his brother in law Carl Eugene, and his pregnant wife Ruth. They all chatted gaily, and he made a date with his wife to see a moving picture that night. Jack London's novel, The Sea Wolf, had been made into a film and was playing at the nearby Pershing Theatre. Showtime was at eight o'clock. After having finished breakfast, Carl took his young bride aside and instructed her to go to Lakeview State Bank and withdraw $1,500, nearly all of their savings. It was time to look for their own home, he told his wife. The newlyweds currently took up one bedroom of the two-bedroom apartment shared with her parents and brother Carl Eugene, who had been relegated to the front sunroom. Ruth had been after Carl for some time to get a home of their own, and with the baby approaching, she believed Carl was finally giving in to the idea. With part one of his plan in action, Carl next had to go downtown. He needed to buy a new knife. A cool light rain greeted Carl's face as he stepped out the front door. He turned up his coat collar and pulled his hat low and headed out to catch the Ravenswood Branch elevated train downtown. The train chugged over the gray Chicago River while gray smoke filled the gray sky. Randolph, next stop, Randolph and Wells. The conductor boomed. Carl walked to the end of the car and stepped off the train. He entered the Paul J. Damicky Company Butcher Supply Store at 150 West Lake Street, and looked for a salesman to talk about a knife. After finding a blade that felt good in his palm, Carl told the salesman that he was going to go for a walk while the knife was being sharpened. Carl strode down LaSalle Street until he reached Madison, where he headed west toward the river, before he eventually reached Halstead Street. He walked slowly as he gazed at his fellow pedestrians making their way up the busy street. He was looking for something specific, yet something that would be invisible at the same time. West Madison Street was known as an area that held those on the lowest rung of the city's social ladder. Cheap flop houses and taverns provided an ever-rotating mix of those most down on their luck. Standing in front of the Mid-City Bank at Halstead and Madison, Carl finally saw what he was searching for. Shuffling past a cigar store Indian before slipping into a corner saloon was the raggedy man who had changed Carl's life. While Carl was downtown, the gray morning passed way to speckles of sun as Ruth sat in the parlor of her parents' apartment. She had recently purchased new yarn in both pink and blue and was knitting socks and booties for their expected child. Ruth was known as a good seamstress and knew she would have an outlet for whichever color turned out to be unneeded. Ruth hoped upon hope that would be unnecessary, though, and that she would not have to sell any superfluous garments. She wanted twins. Carl stood at the bar, sipped at his whiskey, and watched the red-headed man at the other end of the rail. After the man had thrown back a whiskey and looked to be leaving, Carl made his move. With his nearly full shot glass in hand, he moved into position behind the stranger, right as he turned around to leave. The two men crashed into one another, and the shot glass fell to the floor, with whiskey spilling on both men before they simultaneously apologized. Carl offered to buy the young man another drink, and was quickly taken up on his offer. They drank and talked before Carl changed the course of the conversation and offered the young man a job telling him he needed a truck driver for his business. Standing up to leave Carl said meet me at Logan and Western at half past six. He gave the young man a quarter and told him it was for car fare and something to eat not more whiskey. Carl had never been fond of being a butcher but with a spring in his step he made his way back to Paul Damachy's to pick up his new knife before he returned to the butcher shop he shared with his father. At half past six that evening charlie wanderer and son carl closed their shop wanderer the elder walked a few blocks to his home at 2453 west Diversey, while carl walked a block south across logan boulevard towards where the red-headed man from the saloon was standing carl waved to the man to follow him and both hopped on the northbound western avenue streetcar the car was crowded with the workday ending and little was spoken before the pair hopped off the streetcar several blocks north at irving park road while they walked a couple blocks east Carl told the man that he needed to stop and visit someone briefly before they headed up to Ravenswood. Leaving the stranger at the corner of Irving and Greenview, Carl walked down a block and a half before disappearing between two houses. True to his word, Carl was only gone but a few minutes. He apologized when he returned and hustled the man down Irving toward the Lincoln streetcar. As they boarded, Carl took care that the man not notice the 45 revolver he now had in his pocket. As the car was again crowded, Carl said little beyond that they would talk further about a job when they got to their destination, where Carl would then buy the man his dinner. Fate was not cooperating with Carl, though. The restaurant was too crowded for Carl to discuss a job without being overheard. Standing outside in the alley near the restaurant, the two men were finally able to speak without anyone eavesdropping. Wanderer told the man that he did indeed have a job for the man, but it was a little bit different than the truck driving job that he had mentioned earlier. After some back and forth, the man agreed to meet Carl back where they were, sometime between nine and half past nine. Carl hurried home to have supper with his wife and her parents before the movie. That night in the Pershing Theater, as Wolf Larsen silently battled Hump Van Wyden on a silver screen in The Sea Wolf, another battle was being waged in Carl's gut. He was having second thoughts. Could he really go through with this, he asked himself. Taking his wife's arm, he looked at her watch. Nine o'clock. Now or never, he told himself. I'm not feeling well. Can we please leave? Carl whispered to Ruth. Of course, his wife told him before she stood up and led the way out of the dark theater. It was a chilly walk home for a summer solstice night. The gas street lights put off a dim hue as Carl ushered his pregnant wife up Lincoln Avenue. They reached Zinn's Pharmacy and headed west on Lawrence Avenue. A waning crescent moon hung in the sky ahead of them as they walked the last two blocks home. Ruth didn't notice the man that paced along behind them as they walked down the block nor did she notice a slight nod of her husband's head toward the ragged stranger as they passed him. Upon getting home, Ruth slowly climbed the half-dozen concrete steps of the front stoop, as Carl stood at the foot of the stairs and watched his pregnant wife make her ascent. Carl climbed up the stairs quickly and stood on the threshold and held the outer door open as Ruth fumbled with the lock of the inner door. The lock often stuck, and in the dark hallway she was unable to get it unlocked. While Ruth was trying to open the inner door to her family's second-floor apartment, The stranger that had been following them pushed his way past the outer door into the tiny vestibule. He positioned himself to the left of Ruth Wanderer as though the stranger was visiting the first floor apartment. The outer door closed behind him, entrapping all three people in the narrow room. Can't you open it, honey? Carl asked Ruth. Ruth laughed. Sure I can, she told her husband. Wait till I turn on the light. While she held the troublesome skeleton key in her right hand, Ruth reached her left hand for the ribbon to pull on the wall light left of the door. Before she could switch the light on, a stranger's voice commanded, Don't turn on that light. A gunshot broke the quiet. Then two more. Then several. Their muzzle flashes illuminating the small vestibule. The baby, gasped Ruth as she crumpled to the floor. In all, ten shots echoed out in a small vestibule that was only four feet deep by nine feet wide. Carl, I'm shot. Get mama. Ruth's mother was upstairs in their sun parlor, awaiting the return of the young couple from the movie when the shots had rang out downstairs. Mrs. Johnson ran to the door to the stairs, ignoring her own safety. The mother opened the door and called down, Who is that? Is that you? Carl yelled back up the stairs, Ma, there's been a hold up. Ruth is shot. The incredulous mother ran down the stairs and found her daughter lying behind the door. Broken glass littered the floor, and acrid gun smoke hung in the air. The first-floor neighbor, James Williams, his quiet Monday evening at home interrupted by gunfire, called police after hearing Ruth tell Carl she was shot. He opened his door to the vestibule to find Carl Wanderer sitting astride a prone man banging his head on the tile floor. Two revolvers laid on the ground next to the stranger. As Mrs. Johnson and Mr. Williams carried Ruth upstairs, she called out to her mother, "'Ma, is it real?' The woman then told her mother, Oh, my knee and my side. Once upstairs, Ruth was put on a settee in the parlor, where she spent her last moments with the realization she shared with her mother. My baby is dead. Sufficiently satisfied that the stranger was dead, or soon would be, Carl ran up the stairs to their apartment, where his wife lay dying. Kneeling beside his wife, he took her hand, pulled it to him, and tried to remove her wedding ring from her finger. She pulled her hand away and tucked it under her chin. Carl said to his frantic relatives, Rush her to the hospital and take the ring off. Ruth balled up her hand as her mother held her and tried to comfort her and stem her substantial bleeding. While Chicago's Michael Reese Hospital was the first medical center to have a motorized ambulance, albeit only a two horsepower electric motor, the family knew that no ambulance, no matter the horsepower, would be able to arrive in time to save Ruth. My hand is getting so cold, the dying woman said to no one in particular. Mama, 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 she cried in what would be her last words. Ruth Wanderer, Nay Johnson, died in her parents' apartment around 9.20 the night of June 21st. Ruth had taken one bullet just above her knee, and as coroner's physician, Dr. H.G.W. Reinhart, would note of the pregnant woman, one shot entered her left side and passed completely through her body. Pink and blue baby clothes sat in a crib nearby, like the old macabre yarn-off credited at Hemingway, the six words that form the saddest short story ever written. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. In the immediate aftermath of the shooting, the police tried to identify the unknown man in the morgue at Ravenswood Hospital. He was a white male in his early 20s, with a pale complexion and freckles, and light reddish-brown hair that was longer than the style at the time. He had brown eyes, set above a broad nose, centered on a long face with a high forehead. He stood a bit short of six feet tall and weighed around a 150 pounds. He wore ragged clothing described as well-worn and dirty, and of cheap material that included a dark coat, a tan army shirt, bluish cotton socks, and gray trousers held up with a safety pin. He needed a bath, yet had recently had a haircut, shave, and a manicure, as his head was lice-free, his face smooth and his hands immaculately clean. The only money found on the man was 20 cents, one dime, one nickel, and five pennies. He carried commissary ticket number 729 in the name of E-Masters, issued from the John Robinson Circus, and he had a button for Chicago Chauffeurs Union, Local 906. A Colt M1911 revolver with serial number C2282 was at his side. His dead body had four bullet wounds from a forty five revolver, shot at a range of one to three feet. Coroner's physician W.H. Burmeister performed the post-mortem on the unidentified white man on June 22nd at Carroll Undertaker's at 4542 North Ravenswood. He found that gunshot wound number one entered just below the xiphoid process, the cartilage-like piece at the bottom of your sternum, and traveled through a stomach and aorta before it exited left of his spinal column. Gunshot wound number two entered near his belt line on his left side, where it severed the iliac artery and went through the top of his pelvic bone to a slit-like exit wound in the middle of his left buttock. The bullet from gunshot wound number three entered the left wrist and traveled through the forearm, shattering both the ulna and radius bones before lodging near the left elbow. Gunshot wound number four was to the left groin, just above the femoral artery in an area today known as the femoral triangle due to the concentration of vital arteries, veins, and nerves found in the region. The coroner concluded, Death was due to hemorrhage from gunshot wounds to the body. That was all that was known of the man that would be known as the Ragged Stranger. While photographing of criminals began soon after photography became mainstream in the 1840s, it wasn't until nearly 1880 that any type of system was in place to catalog or expand on a rogue's gallery of photographs. Early rogues galleries were literally an area in a police station or a municipal building where a public gallery was set up to display the photographs of local rogues or criminals. Frenchman Alphonse Bertillon came up with a system that revolutionized criminal identifications. Photographs, both portrait and profile, were combined with multiple measurements of various body parts and were recorded to comprise a baseline for identification. Bertillon's identification chart will lead to him being credited as the inventor of the mugshot. The Bertillon system remained the gold standard for identification until fingerprint identifications became the accepted practice. The young science was first introduced to America at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904 by an Englishman, Sir Edward Henry, who showed how fingerprints were unique to each individual. Fingerprinting criminals proved to greatly reduce the amount of storage required by the Bertillon system, which contained measurement charts as well as multiple photographs and took up a vast amount of space. Not only was there a great reduction in storage, the time savings of fingerprinting a criminal compared to taking detailed measurements of various body parts proved valuable for the police. A young attendee of that World's Fair was a son of Chicago Police Captain Michael Evans, and upon his return home, the young man extolled the virtues of the new process. Captain Evans was soon swayed to the idea and introduced fingerprints to the Chicago Police on January 1st, 1905 in his office of Police Identification Bureau. The prints he took from the unidentified white man did not correspond with any on record in his files. He would also send them to Washington D.C. in hopes that the man had served in the army. Another set was also sent to the FBI in the event he had a criminal history that the feds would be aware of. In the end, no records anywhere were located for the unidentified white man. The police brought Carl back to the North police station to ask him a few questions away from the scene. Homicide Detective Sergeant Norton spoke with the grieving husband who laid out the story of how his wife came to be shot. I saw her fall. I jerked out my gun, a forty-five Army revolver, and shot it out with the fellow. How did you happen to be carrying the gun? Norton asked Carl. I was held up last December, shot and robbed of $900. It was my father's money. He's a butcher, and I work for him. I've carried that gun ever since I've been able to get out and around again. I was determined that the next time, well, I carried that gun with me all the time. Carl answered all the questions the police politely asked of him. He spoke longingly for his departed wife and unborn child and the plans they had made for their future. He also found time, and appropriateness evidently, to discuss baseball and politics when the conversation veered off course. With questions coming at all angles, Carl either answered in the affirmative or failed to correct a newspaper reporter when asked about his war service. The next day's papers would write of him being the best marksman in his unit and a war hero who had mowed down Germans and had won the Distinguished Service Cross and the French Croix de Guerre. Carl yawned, and on cue, the police finally asked Wanderer the questions that they had really brought him to the station to answer. The police suggested the vagrant might have been an old lover of Ruth. No, the man was no old sweetheart. I know there was never anyone for Ruth but me. The reporters in the police station surrounded Police Lieutenant Michael Loftus and asked if they were going to lock Wanderer up. No, I think he's entitled to a medal, the lieutenant proudly stated. Despite the opinion of Lieutenant Loftus, Sergeant Norton had his doubts. Two men blazing ten shots with forty fives in such a small space and Wanderer didn't get a scratch? The detective also questioned how a vagrant, in such a sorry state of attire, could be carrying such a nice gun. A Colt 45, like he had could have fetched him around $20, and here he was wearing shoes with holes in them. Well, after midnight, a letter to the Colt company was typed requesting the sales history of the gun recovered at the vagrant's side. The trace of serial number C-2282 was underway. The day after the killings was when the Chicago Daily News' Ben Hecht entered the scene. In a time when reporters were taught to never let the facts get in the way of a good story, Hecht was often without peer. Hecht's storytelling will be delved into in greater depth in a later episode, but it is more his way with the words rather than his way with the truth that merits his writing's inclusion here. Before Hecht went on to win the inaugural Academy Award for Best Writing in an Original Story and was the ghostwriter for Marilyn Monroe's autobiography, he was a young reporter for the Chicago Daily News and was looking to make a name for himself. He was assigned the Wanderer case and met with Carl to Johnston family home the morning after the murder. When Hecht found Carl that morning, he was ironing his brown trousers whilst whistling a tune with Ruth's dead body in the next room, Carl and Ruth's bedroom. Hecht found Carl's gray eyes disarming, and would later say he'd an immediate dislike for Carl. He wrote that, without emotion, Carl replayed those fateful moments, and after checking his gold pocket watch, he told the reporter his story. There isn't much to tell. We'd been to a movie, and this man followed us, I suppose. I was going to turn on the light in the vestibule, so as to see the keyhole, when I hear a voice. Don't turn on the light. I reached for my gun, for I knew what the fellow was up to. He never ordered us to put up our hands, just began to shoot. I was a few seconds late, and that is why she... She is lying in there. The first shot blew him across the hallway, then I could not see him. But I knew I'd landed, and I let him have three more. I got him, but... Hecht, tamping down his dislike for Wanderer, while simultaneously jazzing up his story, went on to paint the scene of what Carl had told him had happened. Hecht wrote, The machine gunner, an owner of a quad de Guerre, stopped talking, and a young husband in a brown suit with eyes reddened from tears finished the sentence. If I'd only got him sooner, just a nickel's worth sooner. But he got what was coming to him. Well, I got him. I got him anyway. Colt 45, serial number C-2282 sat on Sergeant Norton's desk, along with a letter back from the Colt Company headquarters in Connecticut. The gun had been manufactured by Colt in Hartford. It was part of a shipment of 500 guns to the U.S. government's Springfield Armory on April 25, 1912. The gun was then sold to the Von Lagerke and Antoine Company of Chicago in early 1913. VLNA, as the company was known, billed itself as the greatest sporting goods retailer in the world. Being at Wabash and Van Buren put them on the south side of Chicago, which meant they were in Al Capone territory. A sporting goods store that sells firearms was naturally frequented by those that required such tools. The start of the downfall of VLNA might be traced to February 14, 1929, in a garage on North Clark Street. Seven people were shot and killed with multiple weapons, including two Thompson submachine guns that would later be traced back to being sold by VLNA being associated, however distantly, with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, tested the axiom about any press being good press. While VLNA billed itself greatest sporting goods retail in the world, a company in New York was using the same slogan. and In the 1930s, with VLNA on the ropes, the East Coast greatest sporting goods retail in the world, Abercrombie & Fitch, swooped in and purchased VLNA. Sergeant Norton assigned Detective Sergeants Knowles, Parr, and Grady to track down the gun. Upon visiting Von Legerkey and Antoine, the detectives were told by the retailer that a Mr. Peter Hoffman had bought the gun in 1914. Not counting the county coroner, Peter M. Hoffman, there were another dozen or so Hoffmans to track down. But finally they came across electrician Peter H. Hoffman of 1908 North Crawford. Yes, he bought the gun, he told the police, but he sold it a few months afterwards. He told the detectives they should go talk to his brother-in-law, Fred, Fred Wanderer. The detectives knew this was not a coincidence, that the trail led to Fred Wanderer, who would turn out to be Carl's cousin. They knew in their gut that Carl was involved somehow in his wife's death. The men filled in Sergeant Norton, who then planned to have Carl's every move watched around the clock, and for the detectives to gently question Cousin Fred. Norton wanted Carl none the wiser while the police checked into his past. The robbery of his father's butcher shop? Was there anything suspicious there? His mother's suicide? Any chance of foul play there? Nothing was off the table as they dug deeper into their investigation. Norton spoke of how there were other circumstances that belied the suspicion around Wander. These puzzled us considerably. He didn't smoke, drink, chew, or swear. He attended church. He never went out with the girls. His army life was as perfect as his civilian life. Ruth Johnson was the only sweetheart he'd ever had. And friends and relatives remarked upon their devotion for one another. Once the police tracked down Cousin Fred, they asked him a few simple questions such as if Ruth had any enemies that he was aware of. How her marriage was with Carl. How long Fred had known her. Simple questions. Then out of nowhere, they asked him how it came about that his gun was the one that had killed Mrs. Wanderer. Fred said he didn't know what the detectives were talking about. He claimed to have lost his gun. When and where, he was asked. Why didn't he report it lost or stolen? The detectives hammered at him. Finally, he broke. He told of Carl borrowing the gun the day of the murder. He asked me, Fred, will you borrow me your gun? I wanted to know what for, and he replied, I have made a bet with the fellow that I could take it apart in five minutes, and he can't put it back together in one hour. I told him then that he could have it on that condition only. The police now had two dead bodies and two revolvers that were in the possession of Carl Wanderer. In any case of murder, where one spouse perished while in the company of the other, the police often viewed the surviving spouse to be the number one suspect. Love affairs, jealousy, revenge were all common motives, as was money. The police checked to see if there might be any undue financial considerations in the Wanderer affair after Ruth's brother had mentioned to the police how his sister had been a penny pincher and was always putting money into her savings account. After a phone call to Lakeview State Bank, the police were told Ruth Wanderer had withdrawn $1,500 of her $1,579 savings account, nearly $18,000 in today's money, and the withdrawal was made on June 21st the day she was murdered. The police could now add a large sum of money as a possible motive in the case. The police kept coming back to the problem that was lying on a slab in the morgue. Who was he? How could they not identify him? How could a man be bold enough to walk into such a small vestibule for a stick-up unless he had done it before? And if he had done it before, how come he did not have a record with the police? From his natty attire, they knew they were not dealing with a criminal mastermind who had been able to elude notice of police. July 6th. After Fred Wanderer had put the proverbial gun in Carl's hand, the police knew it was time to bring Carl in for more questioning. Sergeant Grady came to Wanderer's house the evening of July 6th with the ruse to get Carl into the police station. My name is Grady, and I'm working on the homicide squad, trying to identify the man that was killed. We have a man locked up over at Roby Street that was seen with the ragged stranger, and I would like to know if you would take a run over and look at him. Carl replied enthusiastically, "'Certainly. I would be glad to. Wait until I get dressed.'" While Grady waited, Ruth's brother Carl returned home and agreed to go along to the police station as well. Upon arriving at the police station, Grady abandoned any pretext of a ragged stranger colleague and showed both revolvers to Carl. "'Are them the two guns?' "'Yes, they are,' Carl said. "'Which belongs to you?' "'Why, the one with the initials on it, marked U.S. Army,' Carl answered." Are you sure this is the gun you had the night this man killed your wife? Yes, Carl told the sergeant. Grady picked up the other gun, the one that bore serial number, C2282, and asked him if he ever saw that gun before that night. Carl said, no, the only time I ever saw that gun was the night of the shooting. The police officer told Carl he didn't believe him and was going to lock him up in jail. Brother-in-law Carl Johnson jumped to his defense. My God, Grady, what do you mean? Grady said that the police had a witness who declared he had loaned gun C2282 to Carl. Grady asked Carl, what will you say if I get a man that will tell you to your face, not only that you've seen that gun, but he loaned it to you? I would say that he's a goddamn liar, Carl exclaimed. Carl's usual pale color became even more pale when he was confronted with his cousin Fred and Fred's brother-in-law, Peter Hoffman. With Carl standing there, Grady asked Hoffman if he had originally bought gun C2282. He replied affirmatively, and added that he'd later sold it to his brother in law Fred Wanderer. Fred then turned to Carl and said, Carl, I'm gonna tell the truth. Looking back to the police, he continued, I loaned the gun to Carl Wanderer about a week before the shooting. Confronted with his cousin's omission, Carl broke down and said, It's the truth. Grady continued to Carl, so you had the two guns, but before he could continue, Carl cut him off. Oh no, I didn't have the two guns. The dead man owned the army gun, and I owned the gun here I borrowed off my cousin. The sergeant asked him, If you didn't own that gun, why did you say you owned it? It was the gun that killed my wife, and I wanted to keep it as a souvenir. Doubting his story, Carl Wanderer was arrested and put in a jail cell. The case caused a grizzled police veteran, Sergeant Norton, to call it the most baffling case of my career. The police were used to parents' protestations to the innocence of their children, such as when Charlie Wanderer offered, My son told the truth when questioned about the tragedy. I'm sure that he never had any trouble during his army life with any of his men or associates. On the contrary, several of his associates told me what a splendid officer he was and how well-liked he was. During the war, his wife went nowhere except to church and to see me. What the police were not used to, what was one of the biggest obstacles to their investigation, was that of the victim's family, the Johnsons. Every family member lived side by side with Carl in a tiny apartment, and all vouched for his character, and scoffed at the notion that he had anything to do with Ruth's slaying. The police are wrong to suspect Wanderer, said Charles Johnson, Ruth's father. The boy has told everything he knew. He has done nothing wrong. I can't believe there's anything sister in this case, beyond what has already been learned. My daughter was killed by a highwayman. Her husband killed the slayer. That is all. Ruth's brother, Carl the same age as Carl, her husband, also was steadfast in his brother-in-law. We cannot believe that Carl shot his wife. We have thought of him at all times as a fine, upright young man. Such a thing as this is preposterous. Ruth's mother made it unanimous for the Johnson family. If I had seen it with my own eyes, I should not have believed. While Carl was held by police overnight so that he could be questioned in greater detail the next day for Ruth's murder, the Johnson family arranged for an attorney to defend him. July 7th. After being rousted from his cell, Carl stood by his story that gun C2282 was his and tried to convince the police of his reasoning. I exchanged my gun for that one as I thought it a better gun. Standing above the robber as he was dying, Carl said the gruesomeness of this appalled him and he changed his mind about taking his souvenir and in going to discard it, he dropped his own gun by mistake. The detectives were soon joined by Coroner Peter Hoffman and representatives from the state's attorney's office. They tried to trip him up, by having him repeat the story over and over, calling him out whenever they noticed a discrepancy. They strongly believed Wanderer was guilty, and they were going to get a confession. Whether Carl was caught in a lie, or whether he made the realization on his own, he knew the second gun was going to be his downfall. He then dropped another bombshell to the police, one they had thought, but one Carl would confirm on his own. Both guns were his, and on his person, when he stepped into the vestibule on the night of June 21st. While in Germany, I purchased the revolver marked LSB, it lay in my bureau drawer until the robbery of my father's butcher shop, December twenty seventh, 1919. After that, I determined to be prepared for any emergency, and so I always carried the revolver in my right hip pocket. In speaking of the night of the murder, Carl tried to explain how the shooting went down. My wife approached the door leading to our flat and could not find her key. Then I attempted to draw my key, which was in my right hip pocket. In doing so, it was necessary for me to first draw the forty-five caliber Colt revolver, initialed LSB. My wife then told me to turn on the light, as she could not see the keyhole. At this, the stranger stepped forward. No, you don't, he said, and jerked my gun from my hand. The gun was loaded and cocked, but the safety catch was on. In jerking the gun from my hand, he must have released the safety catch, because the gun started to go off immediately. I stepped back and drew gun number 2282, which I had borrowed from Fred, from my left hip pocket, and fired at the stranger. When the smoke cleared, I saw him lying in the south part of the hallway, and my wife in the north part. I do not remember who carried my wife upstairs because I saw the stranger moving and immediately straddled him and commenced to beat his head upon the floor. Over and over the story was repeated with more and more skepticism from the lawman. Carl was held another night in the North Robey Police Station Jail. Meanwhile, defense attorney John Terrell was working up a habeas corpus writ to try to get his client out of jail before Carl did something stupid. July 8th. The police used a good cop, bad cop routine with Carl. They had the gruff policeman and coroner get in his face and question his manhood for killing his bride and unborn child in a despicable crime. The lawyers in the room, none acting on Carl's behalf, acted as neutral counselors with sage advice. Do right by his wife and go ahead and admit his sins, they told him gently. Five police officers, four members of the state's attorney's office, the coroner, and a shorthand man all crowded around Carl and peppered him with questions. Carl was on his own. All morning he was questioned and maintained his innocence. He was asked how the robber could see Carl's gun in a vestibule so dark his wife couldn't find a keyhole. I don't know, Carl replied. The police returned to the issue of the money. Carl explained that he and his wife wanted to buy a house soon. It would be easier if they had the money in a bank closer to their home rather than in Lakeview. The police countered with the fact that all who knew Ruth had commented on her miserly and frugal ways, which didn't jive with Carl's story. By withdrawing her money on the 21st of June, Ruth would have forfeited about $250 in today's money in interest that she was due to be paid on July 1st. The police asked Wanderer if that made any sense. I don't know. Was all Carl could offer? The case became a race against time. After over two days of questioning, Carl still had not confessed. The police knew that Wanderer's attorney was likely to be successful in securing his writ of habeas corpus winning Wanderer's release as they did not yet have sufficient evidence to either charge him or to hold him any longer. They needed a confession. In order to buy themselves more time, Coroner Hoffman told Wanderer's attorney that the coroner's inquest, similar to grand jury proceedings today, was being moved from Tuesday, July 13th, up to 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Friday, July 9th, at the Carroll Undertaking Rooms at 4542 North Ravenswood. July 9th. At 2 o'clock in the morning, on the fourth day of his confinement, Carl was awoken by Sergeant Grady entering his cell, shouting questions at the groggy wanderer. Go away and let me sleep, Carl told the detective. Grady stayed in Wanderer's cell, throwing question after question at the suspect, until his comrades in the homicide squad relieved him around 7 o'clock that morning. Another detective took up the cause against Carl's denials and prevented him from returning to sleep. Carl was then taken to the office of the state's attorney in the criminal courts building at 54 West Hubbard. Where at lunch the lawman plopped a huge stake in front of Wanderer. Between bites, he fended off their accusations of him being a baby killer. They trapped him in lies, and he shrugged them off his mistakes in his recollection. He repeatedly answered, I forget, or I don't remember. The afternoon continued, with Carl being shown photos of his dead wife. With a steady hand and dry eye, he returned the photos back to the detectives. I'm innocent. They hounded him with the details of his mistakes. How did he not know the police would trace the gun back to his cousin? Why had he left the $1,500 in his wife's dresser drawer? How could a war hero be disarmed as he says he was? And why did he take both guns to the movies? Around 2 o'clock that afternoon, with his defense attorney on the far north side at the Carroll Undertakers in Ravenswood, and with a full belly and heavy eyelids, Carl continued his defense on his own. Carl finally acknowledged part of the police's theory as being true. Carl admitted he fired all ten shots from both guns. He admitted he had killed them both, but it was only an accident that he had killed his wife. It was dark. She got in front of him. There was confusion, Carl told police. While his client incriminated himself in his crime, his attorney sat waiting for a coroner's inquest that was never going to happen. The change of time and venue of the coroner's inquest was a ruse Coroner Hoffman and State's Attorney Hoyne had set up, to buy them more time with Wander to obtain a confession. They had never changed the date. They had only told Carl's attorney that they had. By the time Terrell realized he had been tricked, he had to head back downtown against Friday afternoon traffic to get to the criminal court's building to file a motion for a writ of habeas corpus to try and get his client released. Otherwise, Carl could be held over the weekend until Terrell could argue his motion before a judge on Monday, at best, or at the real coroner's inquest on Tuesday, at worst. The lawman might have just gotten a couple more days to question their suspect. The day-long third-degree Carl had been under seemed to be working, however, and might make the matter of a writ, a moot point. The police knew Carl was near his breaking point. He just needed a bit more of a nudge. Come on now, think of your dead wife. Think of the baby. Give them a square deal and a tone like a man, one of the men whispered to him. About 2.30 p.m., after over 12 straight hours of questioning, the key to the puzzle walked into the state's attorney's office. The man that had boasted to reporters that Carl deserved a medal for slaying his wife's killer had just arrived to the interrogation. Lieutenant Michael Loftus had a fatherly manner that had gained him Carl's confidence. After trading hellos with Carl when he entered, Wanderer asked the lieutenant if he could speak to him in private. The other men left the office and no sooner had the door closed than Carl bared his soul to the policeman. I had both them guns. They belonged to me. i done the shooting. I shot the stranger and I shot over where my wife was. I had two guns, one in each hand. Carl spared no details, and it was as if a great weight had been taken from his shoulders as he did so. Lieutenant Loftus used all his police training to not grab the killer and shake him silly or worse. Instead, the lieutenant told Carl he had done the right thing in confessing his crime. Loftus informed Carl he would need to make the same statement again with the stenographer and other witnesses present. Carl expressed his eager desire to do so. Loftus opened the door and invited the other members of law enforcement into the office. The state's attorney secretary, George Kenny, sat next to Carl. Tired and broken, Carl wrapped his arm on Kenny's shoulder. Let me get policed up and I'll tell you the whole thing. Getting policed up was a term Carl likely picked up in the army. Getting cleaned up, shaved, and presentable was standard procedure for any type of momentous occasion. Apparently telling the story of his wife's murder was such an occasion. Having been in jail for days... Carl was given his first opportunity to take a razor to his beard. It was reported in the papers that he did so with a steady hand that yielded neither a nick nor a slip. After being held in custody over four days, with the last day including 16 hours of questions from 10 different men, Carl Wanderer made a formal confession to the murder of his wife and the unnamed ragged stranger. I murdered my wife. I shot her to death in cold blood. With all the lawmen crowded around, He repeated the story he had told privately to Lieutenant Loftus. He was asked about his life, his time in the army, and his marriage. He was advised that he should only confess if it would be a truthful confession, and not one that had been coerced from him as a confession would likely be used against him at trial. Carl stated he understood and wanted to tell his story. No stone was left unturned in the 218 questions of the confession, even what he ordered for dinner that night, pork and beans. When presented a typed copy... Wanderer read the confession studiously. After he had finished reading it, he went back and signed and initialed every page. Photos were taken, and Carl shook the hand of every one of his inquisitors. State's attorney McClay Hoyne joyfully announced, We shall go before the grand jury Monday and ask his indictment on a charge of murder. It is one of the most cold-blooded and revolting crimes in Chicago's history. We shall ask for an immediate trial and the rope. Reporters rushed with the news to the Johnson House for their reaction. The family that had stood by Wanderer and secured an attorney for him were blindsided by the news. Carl Johnson stood in front of the house on Campbell, not 10 feet from where his brother-in-law had killed his sister, and said, I've got to hear it from his own lips before I know what to think. I'll go down and see him tomorrow, and then I'll ask him. The reporters asked for a word of Mrs. Johnson, but the son declined. His mother had been nervous and close to a collapse as it was, with Carl just being mentioned as a suspect. His confession to being her killer would be more than she could take. They seemed to be so happy, all sorts of lovey-dovey. He was always so thoughtful of us. He was a fellow of wonderful character. It's hard to believe that he could do such a thing. He caught himself defending his brother-in-law and stopped. He needn't have done that, he exclaimed suddenly. He could have taken the money if that's what he wanted and left without all the stir. What can they do to him anyway, he asked, again showing concern for Wanderer. After being told that the prosecutor announced that he would be asking for the rope to have Carl hanged, the Lone Johnson sibling's only comment was a good night to the reporter. He slowly and quietly entered the vestibule and went upstairs to his parents' apartment. He needed to break his mother's heart again. Carl did not hide or cower after unburdening a soul with the dastardly tale of plotting the murder of his wife, his unborn child, and the unwitting vagrant. He talked, a lot, to anyone who would listen. Carl had been taken from the state's attorney's office to his new cell on Murderer's Row in the county jail at 54 West Hubbard. He was getting situated in the cell as he spoke with the reporter. The New York Times printed this post confession, confession. My name sets me forth correctly. I'm a wanderer and a rover by nature. I hate to be tied down. I was not intended for married life. With these influences working in my veins, the step from discontent to what I did was a short one. Of course, I'm sorry for what I did. Any sane man would be, and I am sane. But that doesn't help matters now. I loved my wife in spite of what I had done. I loved her too well to desert her and leave her with the memories of a ruined romance to keep her company for the rest of her life. I decided the easiest way out was to kill her. Most men, after doing that, would have been sleepless and haunted by visions at night. I wasn't. I slept like a top, and I didn't have a single dream that I can remember. I am sorry I had to kill that other chap, but I was afraid he would squeal. Killing him didn't do any good, for I did not have presence of mind enough to remember that those army automatics were numbered. There was the weak link in the chain. If I had remembered that, I would have been all right, and I would have made my getaway after staying long enough to completely quiet any suspicion that might have been aroused against me. Wanderer even shared a heart-to-heart with one of the lawmen who put him behind the bars he now spoke through. "'Well, I'm sure you'll sleep better tonight,' Detective Sergeant Grady told Carl, as he prepared to leave him in the custody of the jailers on Murderer's Row. "'I certainly will, old man. I feel much better with that off my chest.' Do you know, I felt all the time you were going to get me. From the moment I thought the whole thing over, I knew I was a goner. Only once, I had hope. That was when they let me go, and the papers were calling me a hero. I feel like a new man, and I'm ready to kick off whenever they want to take me. The steel cell door slammed shut, locking Carl in a cell alone. Say, Wanderer called as Grady was leaving. The detective returned to the cell and faced Wanderer. Say, would you want to shake the hand of a guy that did what I did? Carl asked the detective. A quick, silent handshake was shared before the detective strode out. Ben Hecht also interviewed Carl on Murderer's Row and observed an examination of Wanderer by Dr. William Hickson, one of the city's top insanity experts, or alienists as they were known in the day. Hecht asked, What did you kill your wife for? Oh, because I wanted to get in the army, see? Had you been restless for some time, or worrying about your home and feeling disgusted with things? Not at all. Never. Never thought of going into the Army until two days before I killed her. You never quarreled or anything? I should say not. A man's duty is to keep his wife happy. Go on, tell us about yourself. Well, in the Army I never spent my money, but saved $800. I never kissed a woman until Ruth came along, and never anybody else. I've always done what was exactly right, and never done wrong. The alienist then chimed in, Dementia praecox catatonia, a very defined case. A mind geometrically moral, but emotionally unmoral. Preoccupied mechanically with ideas of right and wrong. Sometimes the praecox of this type would not only be cold and geometrical in his thoughts, but will also walk like an automaton, arms swinging at stiff angles, legs moving as if in a continual goose step. Hecht continued his interview. When you thought of killing Ruth, were you excited or frightened? Say, I've never been nervous in my life or frightened. I just thought of it and decided I had to do it quick, while I was wanting to, or pretty soon I'd lose the idea of doing it. Did you fear that she would suspect your intentions during the two days? No, not at all. Nobody ever knows me or anything about me unless I tell them. Your mother committed suicide, didn't she? Yes, she was religious. Used to be preaching around. I was in the army then. She bumped herself off. Were you much affected by her death? No, I was in the Army, I told you. I was always happy in the Army. Again, Dr. Hickson explained, autismus. that means a shut-in personality, no contact, that is, emotional contact, with his parents or his wife. Lives like a man in the cave and conceals his actual cold-bloodedness or non-interest in life by methodically doing everything that is right. Having inherited from his mother an out-and-out case of praecox herself, who committed suicide, a moral mania, He utilizes it as a sort of code. Behind this code lives the real wanderer. Hecht continued, "'Did you meet any old army friends "'who put the idea of going into the army in your mind?' "'No, how could I? A man's place was with his wife, and I was always home. "'I was always kind to her, "'but I got this army idea all of a sudden "'and decided to follow it. "'Was it on account of fretting about her having a child "'and the worrying about the responsibility?' "'Say, I never worried in my life. "'It was just the army I wanted.' Dr. Hickson then came up with another interesting diagnosis. We can now add latent homosexuality to the complication. Psychoanalysis has revealed that a mania for army life is one of the inevitably distinguishing characteristics of women haters, men with degeneracy, either latent or functioning in them. I've observed scores of such cases myself. Now impelled to run from responsibility is one real emotion asserts itself. This is the desire for army life. In our laboratory here, One of the fundamental tests to ferret out from a man, whether he's homosexual, is to ask him to tell us his dreams. Usually, he will try to boast of his masculinity by reciting that he dreams of heroic things, armies marching, battles, deeds of valor. This, however, is invariably a dead giveaway. It becomes at once obvious to us that he has the military complex of homosexuality, and invariably we secure his confession by confronting him with a scientific statement written in books that many dreams of army life may mean a state of physical degeneracy. Hecht ended. Are you sorry for what you've done? Well, if I'd gotten away with it, I'd have been in the army, and I would have been fine. Psychoanalysis was a burgeoning field in the early 20th century, and the example posed by Dr. Hickson of interpreting a dream about soldiers marching and tying that to a military complex of homosexuality may seem laughable today, but it obviously hit a nerve with the young reporter Hecht. Later, we'll delve into Heck's own sexual peculiarities and his association with Austrian psychologist Dr. Wilhelm Steckel, an early student of Dr. Sigmund Freud's. Dr. Steckel's published works included The Homosexual Neurosis, Sex and Dreams, and Bisexual Love. This exchange, started by Carl answering a question about responsibility and his desire to return to the army, led to the seemingly flippant diagnosis of latent homosexuality. This point marks the beginning of the narrative that Wander was a homosexual. Reporters finally reached Ruth's mother for comment on the confession and pending indictment of her son-in-law. Night after night I have seen them together, happy, loving, talking about the baby that was to be born within a little while. I loved them both very dearly, and after my darling was dead, I tried to help him bear the blow. I would throw my arms about him. I would kiss him. Him, her murderer. He always seemed to be greatly affected when I tried to comfort him. My heart ached for him. And now, oh, how could he have done such a thing? What possible motive was there? Why did he have to kill my daughter? He could have taken the money. He could have gone to the army. He could have done anything but this. Asked if she believed that Carl should be hanged for his crimes, she turned the other cheek. We are Christian people. We are taught to forgive those that have trespassed against us. Let the authorities prosecute if they must. So as not to leave any doubt about the temperature and pressure of his blood, or lack thereof, Wanderer gave another jailhouse interview with reporters. How did you spend the morning? I prayed, and I feel much relieved. Whom did you pray for? Myself and my wife. I prayed for her and the baby. You know, the baby. Do you believe in God? Sure, I've always gone to church. The Messiah Lutheran Church. Grace and Second Streets. Used to go with her. Do you think he'll forgive your sins? Sure. Doesn't the Bible say so? I've told everything, haven't I? The police said my soul would stay in hell for 200 years unless I confessed. Are you ready to die? Anytime. I'm not afraid. I'm ready to hang now. There's one thing I would like to say before I do. There was a time when I used to laugh at the old third-grader stuff about honesty being the best policy and the straight and narrow stuff. But it's the only way, I guess, people like me come along to warn the rest. A thousand times I've thought of one scene that will stay with me till the very last moment of my life. This is the scene where they buried Ruth three days after I had killed her. I stood at the side of the grave at Graceland when they lowered the casket. It was after the service with the flowers and the tears that I knew you can't forget somebody just because their heart stopped beating with Wanderer locked up, law enforcement was all smiles. First Deputy Chief of Police John Alcock. Laid all the praise on Sergeant Norton, as he was the one who relentlessly grilled Wanderer to obtain the confession. Alcock called it the greatest piece of detective work ever pulled off. Nearly one month after the killing, Wanderer was brought before Chief Justice Robert Crow. "'Have you an attorney?' "'Why, no, I haven't,' Carl answered. "'Do you want one?' asked the judge. "'No, sir.' "'Would you like to have the court appoint one?' "'No, I'm ready for trial now,' Carl stated. "'I will not permit you to go on this way. "'I will appoint counsel to represent you.' Judge Crowe called for volunteers to represent Wanderer, but no one stepped forward. In the absence of an attorney, it is the duty of the court to appoint counsel for you. I have appointed Benedict Short and George Gunther, both former Assistant State's attorneys. If it develops in the trial that you are deserving punishment, it should be done in an orderly manner according to law, Judge Crowe ruled. While reluctant to take on the case, the attorneys quickly found they had a reluctant client. Wanderer had confessed, he told them. He was prepared to answer for his crimes and accept his punishment. What could have been the easy route to allow him to plead guilty was never considered by Short and Gunther. I want you to understand that I've never represented a man in my life who has pleaded guilty without some previous understanding as to clemency. We will fight for your protection. You are entitled to every defense the law gives you. There may be something in your life, your experiences, in your family that will save you, the attorney Short told Wanderer. State's attorney Hoyne was so confident in the outcome of the trial that he said, The trial will be short, and I should not be surprised to see the jury deliver their verdict without leaving the box. On his way into his next appearance in court, attorney Ben Short was asked if he was going to take Wanderer to trial. Yes, I advise him to plead not guilty. I don't know what type of defense we will make, but he will get all the safeguards the law provides. Wanderer made it clear to the reporters his change of heart. They will have to fight to hang me. I've got a swell lawyer, and we'll beat this case yet. On the next mystery of the Ragged Stranger... Who was the ragged stranger? Thank you for listening, and thank you to Edgar Ramos, Matt Schwerha, and everyone at Chicago Now for their help in producing this podcast. This series is made up of eight episodes, and our next episode will air on Monday, July 23rd. We will then release new episodes every other Monday through the end of September. We're going to leave you with a song called The Butcher's Boy by Buell Casey. This song is being heard courtesy of June Apple Recordings in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Enjoy.
1: He takes that strength